It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly potpourri edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com, digital sports columnist and editor with Rick Boring. Each and every week, we look at sports topics of local interest, uh, maybe a national sports topic or two. We've usually got a gambling segment, which we do today, even though we're recording this as the Masters is underway. It's not underway enough to where I can't give you a few picks that, that maybe you can squeeze in under the wire. And if not, at least you know where I stand on some of those picks. We got some grass skinny anything questions, including I've had to, I've been asked to write 15 random random people, which I have done. I, I will admit ahead of time. I've done my homework for our friend Mo Egger, 15 just random names. And truth be told, Rick, you were telling me you knew about three of them. Three of the 15, I think, is what it is. Maybe four. <laughs> uh, I is is it is it a point where Mo needs to scale these lists back? Is he getting Ooh, out of control and providing you know, too much it's work? No, it, it's, it's even better. Okay. I okay. mean, you said Because when it, I saw you, that list, I was like, I almost feel bad texting this to Skinny. Uh, I, listen, the only one I didn't have a lot of, of at least semi-working knowledge going in, I knew she was a tennis player, and we'll get to it, is Chanda Rubin. Everybody else, I knew exactly who they were, and I just had to go do a little bit of extra research to figure out how I wanted to rank them. Fair enough. Well, there you go. So, All right, well, let's jump right into it, because the Reds, believe it or not, are on a five-game winning streak after taking two from the Cardinals and sweeping the Pirates to start the season. Over the first six games of action, the home team has scored a total of 57 runs while also belting 14 homers. Nick Castellanos and Tyler Naquin are both red-hot, having hit four of those bombs. Skinny, do you think this Reds offense has the chance to keep it up and continue being one of the best in baseball, or is this a bit of fool's gold to start the season? Um, I mean, they're not going to be like nine runs per game like they are right now hot, but I, I think I told you before the year, I, I think this is an offense that has a chance to produce and it doesn't have to do anything over the top extraordinary in my opinion. Um, yeah, Tyler Naquin's a surprise, but I'll be honest, Rick, go look at Tyler Naquin's baseball reference page. And really w- when he first came up with the Indians, he showed some pop. I think he had a career 771 OPS despite battling through some injuries. And for a fourth outfielder, that's pretty good. Now, listen, uh, he, he's he's not Derek Dietrich who's going to hit you 19 home runs in a month like Derek Dietrich did, but I also don't think he's Derek Dietrich who then all of a sudden fell off the planet Earth and um, was a complete dud after that. I think he's a great fourth outfielder who just happens to be hot. Jonathan Indy is not going to keep up a 270 RBI pace for the season like he's on right now, but I think we both agreed the potential was there for that guy hitting down in the order to give you far more than Freddie Galvis could give you. Um, I think I told you that I think, you know, Nick Castellanos has a chance for a great bounce back here. Not the pace he's on by any stretch, but no, I, I think this offense does have a chance if it stays healthy to produce. And don't forget they're doing it right now without Jesse Winker. Now, Jesse Winker would have to do what Tyler Naquan's doing. And I don't think that, you know, you could expect that at the moment. Um, so sometimes there's a little luck involved that uh, Tyler Naquan's playing and, and Winker's not and Naquan's hitting the way he is, but you still got him to, to plug in, into the lineup. You still got Shogo at some point to plug into the lineup. So I do, I've thought all along this offense had a real good chance to be much, much, much better. I think their approach at the plates better. I like the fact that they're running more, taking extra bases. Um, they've obviously do have a plenty of pop in, in that lineup from a home run perspective. I, I, and, and listen, I, 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 I know people, oh, it's just the pirates. You're beating up on the pirates. What do you want them to do? You want them to lose to the pirates? I mean, this is what we talked about before the year began with the pirates, but back to your initial question, because I'm rambling here for a second. I, I, I've i thought all along this offense had a chance to be pretty darn good. Well, and the, the whole thing with them beating up on the Pirates, 
one, I do think that's part of this. Obviously, the Pirates looked terrible and the Reds absolutely dominated their pitching. And part of that's the a little bit of luck in the Reds being hot. And part of that is I think the, the Pirates really stink as bad as I everyone yeah. expected yes. them to stink yes. before the season. So, yes, that's absolutely part of it. But in this season, we talked about it on last week's show in a year where we're expecting the team that wins the NL Central to have what? 87 wins potentially like that would in terms of the Vegas betting odds that would have been that would have hit the over for every single team in the central including the Cardinals which were uh, the top with I think 86 and a half wins as their total so if you're talking about a division that's that close it's going to come down to who dominated in the margins who took care of the Pirates as much as they possibly could that's who's going to come away with the win who won series against each other inside the division. So, so far what the Reds have done in two series is win a series in a 50, 50 uh, matchup with, with the Cardinals and dominate the team. You need to dominate. I think you're right. That's where it comes down to is I don't need you to go sweep the Cardinals all the time, sweep the Brewers all the time, sweep the Cubs all the time. I do need you to win more series than you lose to those teams. And then I need you to go dominate the pirates. Yeah. And it, and it may mean very little that you got off to this hot start in the whole scope of 162 game season, but you know what the Reds have also done? They've also put themselves in a really bad spot over the first two weeks of the season in the past. They've also been behind the eight ball or maybe almost all the way out of contention after the first two weeks of the season at times. So to to do this whole, it's just the Pirates that they beat up on thing, it shows absolutely no perspective of recent Reds history and no context as to what we're about to witness this season in the NL Central. I think that was a really important series. It was good to see them dominate. Now, Obviously, I don't think they're going to continue playing on offense the way they have. A lot of that's luck. A lot of that is playing against the Pirates. But I am fascinated to see how much longer this can go. I mean, we're to the point now where Aristides Aquino is a legit power option off the bench. Yes. I mean, he's proven that over multiple years now that he can give you spurts of power off your bench. He's done that. The Naquin, Kyle Farmer's a nice bench piece. Tyler Naquin's a great bench piece. Right. Naquin seems like a nice bench piece who's catching fire right now. Nick Castellanos started off last year really hot. Hopefully he'll be a little more consistent this year. But, you know, I think that was a really nice pickup by the Reds. Tyler Stevenson is hitting in his role when he's getting his opportunity so far, which is something you talked about a lot in this preseason, how big an upgrade he would be from an offensive perspective. And by the way, Skinny, the Reds did all this stuff on offense without Suarez getting going right. at all. Exactly. He didn't hit the point. ball at all. Now, he, he took some walks, which was good to see. But, you know, I, I think that was him and Vado. neither one of them were, were hitting very well over these first two series, and the Reds dominated on the offensive side. So, again, yeah, it's not going to continue at this rate, obviously, but the Reds are doing enough right now and with some of the optimism we had coming into the season that you have to feel pretty good about their chances to sustain some type of momentum on the offensive side. Uh, and, 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 oh, yeah, by the way, from a pitching perspective, you will get Sonny Gray back sooner rather than later. You will get Michael Lorenzen back. And listen, I can Wade Miley sustain what he did for 32, 34 starts. Probably not, but Wade Miley really, I thought, looked really good, at least from a health perspective of just stay healthy and give me your five or six innings to start. I'm going to take it, man, and, and run to the bank with it. The offense has been ridiculous, and we obviously talked about that to start, but – in terms of individuals, whether it be pitchers, hitters, position players, whatever, who has caught your attention most over these first six games? Well, it's pretty, it's, it's got to be India, right? I mean, it feels like every time he comes up, guys are in scoring position and he's knocking them in. He's off to a to a pretty historic start. Um, you know, he's got these got the tied for the fifth most RBI in a, in a 
in a six game span for a guy to start his career in major league history. Um, he's been really good, you know, with, with runners in scoring position. I think he's been actually superb defensively. I mean, the relay throw was unbelievable um, in, in Wednesday's game to get the guy at the plate. And he's, he's shown, uh, he's shown good range. He's, he's shown he can certainly play the position. So yeah, I, it's gotta be India, right? Uh, yeah. Naquan, just because I think nobody really knew who he was, but if you go back and look at, at some of the stuff he did in Cleveland when he was healthy, he was a respectable player. That was a, that was a good under the radar signing by the Reds. And as much as I've, I've knocked Nick crawl and, and, the, and the staff and, and we made fun and poke fun at the, the lack of the whole shortstop plan, which still is, is open to debate whether it's going to work long-term or not. Um, that was a good under the radar signing. So yeah, I'll go Indian and Naquan just, I mean, the, the Naquan two game span the last couple of days was, was just silly. Yeah. With Nate, when it's like, he's a, he's a backup serviceable guy that I think you kind of know what you have and you're fortunate to get some some pop out of him early right here while he's hot and that that's great you know the, the fact that you had the opening to play him right now and he's hot it, it's perfect but the India thing that's a whole different ball game because that is a guy that had a lot of potential as a prospect had his his career kind of delayed in terms of accelerating to the majors and now that he's finally here, he looks the part. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know that he'll continue doing what he's doing right now, but he looks the part. He has pop, especially for a second baseman. Like you said, he's he's looked sure of himself and smooth in the field. He's got a little bit of athleticism. He's got some fire to him. It has to be India for me just because of what that means for the Reds' plans right now. If India is solid being able to move moose over to third it, it, it swore as to short it really fixed that whole infield disaster that they had heading into the season but even looking forward next year and beyond if india is your go-to second baseman it makes things easier in terms of putting the pieces together so uh, that's got to be the biggest head turner in terms of the start is the way india has played to this point yeah, and listen, I mean, there's very little major league book on him yet, so that's coming. Um, sure. You know, and and we'll see what what adjustments teams make. And but then, sometimes and you can get away with adjusts. the whole season before that adjustment happens. Yeah, no, you see it. You see a lot of guys have that great rookie year, then you wonder why do they fall off? Well, because eventually people figure out what their holes are and they can't uh, adjust to that. So yeah, you're you're right in that. But just from from the the short sample size, it does give you the thought process of boy. In a couple of years, Indy and Garcia up the middle, Suarez back at third when Mustakas's contract eventually wanders out, or you know maybe the last year of his contract, he he gets moved to first for Votto, um, and you, you can see some some not only present pieces but but future pieces as well. So, yeah, it's 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 been it's been a pleasant surprise uh, what he's done for sure. You're talking about some of the pitching, you know you. you you're probably not going to get consistent efforts like you've gotten to start the season aside from Castillo's opening day outing. But I think the, some of these guys have shown us something. Is there anyone that, you know, again, kind of caught your attention more than the others in terms of their, their first starts? Yeah, I guess daily own because I've heard so much good things about him. Um, uh, he had obviously a, a good winter and then carried that over to spring training. And I think carried it over to his first start. Uh, he got, he got roughed up a little bit early on, kind of gritted his teeth. The offense came back and he hung in there too. Uh, so yeah, I think he's a, he's a very interesting piece moving forward. Cause I think our assumption is, you know, uh, eventually he's probably the odd man out of the rotation with Lorenzen in. And I'm just not so sure of that. It's probably Jeff Hoffman. If, if that's the case, but he had a pretty good first start. Um, I, I think the good part to that is there's at least one or two odd men out when Sonny Gray and Lorenzen come back. Um, and maybe those odd men are going to be bullpen pieces or honestly, 
and I still am a big believer in this. I just don't know about Michael Lorenzen as a starter. So maybe he goes back to giving you another bullpen arm when he comes back. I have to say, I'm, I'm starting to get a little bit drunk off the Derek Johnson Kool-Aid and Kyle body. Uh, no, I'm right. starting to believe these guys You're really right. know what they're doing. And again, the whole spin rate thing has become such a craze in baseball. And you look at what Bauer was able to do last year and how he jumped those revolutions up big time by using some sort of sick, sticky substance that he's now debating with major league baseball about. And I look at a guy like Tyler Malley. It, it seems to fit their exact profile for what they're looking. A guy with high spin rate, who's a little under the radar, who, you know, did some nice things last year and already in his first start this year, it wasn't great, but spin rate really high struck out nine guys. That seems like another guy who they've kind of pigeonholed in this, this fit for what they like to do in terms of the high spin rate with their fastball and, and breaking ball. And to me, that's, that's another guy that I think maybe he really does have a chance because he showed us well, something last year. He came out, he punches out nine guys in his first outing this year. I'm pretty excited to see his next start. Well, and that's what we go back to when things are healthy. How about a rotation if, if Mally is for real? And I think he's starting to show that. I mean, he, I think he showed that for a chunk of last year that he's a very solid rotation piece. I think DeLeone just looks like he's got a chance to be really good. So suddenly you're going to give me a rotation of Castillo, Gray, Mally, DeLeone, and, and Wade Miley? That's yeah. a pretty good rotation, man. Well, and DeLeone's another guy. High spin rate, nine strikeouts in five right. innings. I mean, th this seems to be what they're going towards. And for a while, the Reds talked a lot about pitch to contact was kind of like a buzz phrase you heard used uh, in spring training and stuff. And that was the red strategy. They're walking too many guys, nibbling too much. They're going to be aggressive and pitch to contact. Now, all of a sudden, it seems like it's the exact opposite. They want to miss bets as much as possible. And to be quite honest, I'm with that idea. I, I like that. That seems to work better than pitching to contact, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and, and this staff, aside from Wade Miley, I mean, it's a bunch of power arms anyway, so so go ahead and let him, let him do that. All right, anything else to uh, touch on on the Reds opening series? Or? No, I I just laugh at that, the whole, the whole, oh, it's just the Pirates. You're right, it is just the Pirates. But what did you want them to do? Did you want them to lose? Because trust me, if they'd have lost to the Pirates, it would have been the, the exact opposite of, of, of that, of, oh, can't even beat the Pirates. It's a, it's one of those scenarios if you can't win for losing, you can't lose for winning. It's It's really true. Yeah, and I, I was fairly pessimistic coming into the season. I thought, you know, look, they didn't upgrade this team. In fact, they probably got worse. I still don't know that they're going to win more than half their games this season. But again, they showed you something in the first two series, and you have to beat up on the Pirates. So no, I, I'm nothing telling you to take away from this team after the first two series. I truthfully think if they can go 500 against everybody other than the Central Division and do what we just talked about, dominate the Pirates win more series. You don't have to win every series. That's obviously not realistic to believe you're winning every series, but win more series than you lose. And this will be an 87, 88 win team that I think wins the division when all said and done. No, that's all it's going to take. I think, and whether yeah. they can do it or not, we'll find out. Well, let's switch gears here. The Bengals released veteran running back Giovanni Bernard on Wednesday. He was set to enter the final year of his contract with Cincinnati to the tune of a $4.77 million cap hit that included $3.7 million in base salary. The team had asked Bernard to take a pay cut, which resulted in him just asking for his release instead, to which the team agreed. Skinny, do you think the Bengals handled this Giovanni Bernard situation well? Yeah, fine. I, I got no problem with it. Um, I, I've written all offseason. I thought he was going to be a cap casualty. Um, you know, and there is a human being at the end of this that lost his job, so I don't want to want to be completely cold. But listen, pro sports is a cold business, and the teams that sometimes make the cold decision of, 
we have to move on from you because it's the prudent thing to do are the ones that are usually successful. And the Bengals a lot of times have unfortunately, this is going to sound terrible. They've kind of gone the human route of, Oh, let's keep him around for another year just because he's a nice, cute guy that we all love. And I think they did that with AJ green. And I think they kept him around one year too long. And I think this, this off season is showing the last couple of off seasons have shown they're all of a sudden diving into free agency. Like they've never done before. This offseason, they decided to let go of A.J. Green, rightfully so. Let go of Geno Atkins, rightfully so. Let go of Giovanni Bernard, rightfully so. And, you know, it's no knock on Giovanni Bernard, but listen, you know, they save $4 million in salary cap space with that move. They still have to re-up Jesse Bates and, and Sam Hubbard. They probably still need to sign one more linebacker here before uh, the draft begins. And, and so you need to have some money to do that. And I'm sorry that it comes at the cost of a guy that's been a great guy in the community, a guy that fans love. Um, it, but it's the right football decision because to have a backup running back, who's only going to touch it five times a game. If Joe Mixon's healthy at most, I can give those to Samaj P Ryan and Travion Williams and feel just as good as, as I would, if I gave those, those touches to Giovanni Bernard. So from a football perspective, good for the Bengals to finally make football decisions that are right for the team. And this was right for the team. It really was. So I'm with you on that line of thinking that, you know, do you think the Patriots sit there and worry about the human aspect of who they're cutting when they're doing it? Or if the guy was a veteran presence or if he was a good locker room guy? No, they go and they make the best football decision and they're cold blooded about it. And that's how sports should work at the highest level. I'm fine with that. These guys get compensated so well. It's not like you or me losing our job. You know, he, he, Giovanni Bernard is going to be just fine, even if he never plays another game of NFL football. That's not to say I don't feel bad for a guy losing his job, and, sure. and I'm not appreciative of the way he handled himself while he was here. But, yeah, it's not the end of the world that a guy who's made multi-millions of dollars over the course of his career and can continue to earn more likely, uh, he'll be okay. I'm more, I guess, curious about – kind of the way they did did it in terms of holding on to him for multiple weeks is there anything to that do you think that doing it this way is a little shady of them to no, wait to this point in free agency no because I, I don't think he was going to be a commodity on the free agent market um i, I if they had cut him i don't think teams would have been clamoring to sign giovanni bernard i think they're going to be I, I think no matter when the bengals would have done this he's one of those guys and there's a bunch of them that will be out there that in training camp, when an injury get, comes along, or if a team finds itself maybe needing a guy going into training camp, you sign him. Um, I don't think the market for Giovanni Bernard was, was all that big. I, I don't. So I don't think they did, did him wrong in any way, shape, or form. I think this is just the, the business of football. And um, yeah, I don't think it would have mattered when they let him go. To, if, they, if they waited two more weeks, I don't think it would have mattered. Um, I think he's going to hang around. And, you know, again, maybe a team that decides it needs him as a second back is out there. I don't know who that team would be, but it certainly seems like there's a lot of teams with multiple backs on their roster that are probably as good as Giovanni Bernard at a cheaper price. And I think that's just where it came to. I mean, for $4.6 million a year, that's just too much for a backup running back to make in this league. In my opinion, it's, it's silly to pay running backs multiple millions of dollars, at least, you know, more than one of them. And they're paying Joe Mixon enough to say, Joe, you're now a three down running back. And, and, you know, Let's have at it. Uh, we're not listen. The only reason they signed Giovanni Bernard, what they did, he's lucky he got the last extension he got. I mean that sincerely. He's lucky because um, they did that as an insurance piece for Joe Mixon if they couldn't re-sign him, and that's all it was. And then they re-signed Joe, and they kind of got stuck with that extra year of Geo, which was 2021. And so this is the writing for this. Listen, the writing for this was on the wall. The second Samaj P Ryan showed he could perform down in Houston. The second Travion Williams broke a big run in in whatever one of those games he got a touch in. Writing was on the wall that. 
listen, these guys, if I'm going to get five touches a game, I can get these two guys for a combined $2 million. And that's half of what I'm paying this guy for, for his five touches a game. So again, I got no problem with, it. I got no problem how they handled it. I heard people yesterday on local radio shows and you saw it on Twitter where people are bringing up the idea that he had Zach Taylor's back last year when things were bad, that he was out in the media saying, you know, he's our guy. He's, he's a good coach, all of that stuff. And pointing that out, I I, I'm with you. I don't care about any of that. That means absolutely less than nothing to me, but I'm actually, I was more struck by the idea, not that Giovanni Bernard was getting cut after being a guy who had Zach Taylor's back, but more so that the guys who were part of the old regime don't seem to have a lot of value here with this new regime. It it seemed from the get-go that Zach Taylor has kind of been about clearing house if it makes any sense to do so. And that just continues with one of the guys that was perceived to be one of the best locker room and chemistry veterans that you had in there. And again, it's a football decision that makes sense from a football perspective, I think. And I don't really care about any of that stuff. But I did find it a little bit interesting, not that he had Zach Taylor's back last year, but just that this staff continues to kind of run guys off from the old regime, even if they, they still seemingly have some value. Yeah, and I think there's a little coincidence to that, though, too. I mean, I think the guys Part we're talking about. Yeah, there's a little. I mean, are you really? And let's just go individually. Was Carlos Dunlop very productive here before they let him go? The last handful of games? No. Okay. Uh, was Geno Atkins very productive? Skinny, they won two games uh, one year and then four games the right. next. None of them were very right. productive. Yeah, and I think that's the point. I think the coincidental part of it is it's just some guys that are longer in the tooth. And yeah, I, I do think there's some of... Those are not his guys, and it makes it an easier decision to make when all is said and done. But um, I'll be honest with you. I don't think I'm, I, I've shed a tear over one of those moves from a football perspective. I think they all make sense. Letting Gino go makes sense. Punting Carlos Dunlap last year made sense. Um, punting Gio now makes sense. Letting A.J. Green walk, that all makes sense. I think it's coincidence, but it is interesting. You're right. I mean, because those are not his guys, and I think there is a little something to to the whole changing of the guard. But listen, you know, in this league, very rarely you're going to have a guy that's been around for 10, 12, 15 years. I mean, your lifespan in the league is three to five years if you're lucky. And so there's a there's a changing of the guard in the league all the time for, for all teams. It's just funny because you you've heard that culture and all that talk and people use that as buzz terms and coach speak so often. Yeah, um, so nonsensical. It is. And, but it was just interesting to sort of see this locker room really get reshaped. And you're right. That's the nature of the NFL. You move guys in and out. If they've been here for multiple years, chances are, yeah, they're going to be gone sooner than later, but we are getting to the point now where it's pretty much everyone from the old regime is gone at this point. That's a, a big contributor. Yeah. I always love, I, I heard, a, I heard a guy last night, I was running in there and I was listening to our friend Lance McAllister from sports talk. And a guy called in about, you know, the red start. And uh, he made the point of, you can see the difference in this team because of Jonathan India's fire. Come on. No, that has nothing to do with it. The fact that he's hitting the ball has everything to do with it. Stop with the fire and the chemistry nonsense. Just stop. I I, I agree with you from a, like, it has nothing to do with why they're winning, but I do like the whole Reds acting like they're these badasses this year. And that's uh, fine. Amir Garrett saying, I'm we're into that. We want to be bat flipping and yelling in people's faces and acting like they are. Like, like you said, that's fine. It's fun. I like yeah, that. The, and the only and when the only winning. way that looks good when you're winning, right? I mean, yeah. if you're doing that crap when you're losing, you look like a fool. So right, 
You're, trust me, they're not winning because of Jonathan India's fire. They're winning because Jonathan India has been extraordinarily productive through six games. There's a and, huge difference. And Tyler Naquin's behind him belting four home runs through right. six yes. games. Yes, yes, <laughs> Yeah, I'm with you. I remember the whole Derek, Derek Dietrich's got great. Look at his attitude. Love his attitude. You know what? He stunk. They stunk. Yeah. He remember, had a great five weeks. Remember how fun Derek Dietrich was when he was wearing yep. beekeeper outfits on the field? Yep. And he was Boy, just fun so Derek funny. He's lighting the mood. Lightning yep. the mood. It just made everyone else looser. They played better until sure he did. was hitting 0.067. Correct. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right. Sorry. Sorry to digress. I just love those kind of things, though. All valid points. Uh, the Bengals have also formally announced the creation of a ring of honor. That news came out hey. this morning, right before we started recording this. They're going to hold an 11 a.m. press conference, will, which will probably be while we're still recording this. Uh, your thoughts on the ring of honor, if any, finally being announced. I'm glad they did it. I mean, obviously it kind of got leaked and it, I, I don't know if that leak in retrospect was, was more of a tease than a, than a accidental leak. I, I, I tend to think it was probably more of a tease and neither here nor there. I think um, it was accidental. Do you? Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's I mean, if you're doing press conferences and stuff for things like this, usually they want to control that type of yeah. release. I think they totally slipped up with this. And yeah, uh, honestly, it, it's exactly what we thought. Who cares about this announcement now? No one. Yeah, except because for the fact that, that the logistics of it, I'm still a little puzzled by. So for those that have not seen, it's on our website at local12.com, all the details. Um, they're going to have a four-member inaugural class. They've already put two in, and the two, the first two are the easiest two, Paul Brown, uh, clearly, and, and Anthony Munoz. I think those were, those have always been my easy first two. And I've done a – you can find them on local12.com. I've done some columns on who should be members of the first class. And I'll probably do another one here too, because they're going to set it at four members. And so what they've done then is the other two are going to be voted on by season ticket holders. And you know what I think about that? I mean, have the guts to just do it yourself. It's your team. I know you can argue it's the fans team. No, listen, if the fans vote Boomer Esiason as one of the two, and he's a popular Bengal, right? Really? I mean, yeah. exactly and yeah. i don't i got nothing against boomer in fact i think i i think boomer's on the cusp of my 15 member inaugural class if he had one i don't think i'd put him in my first 10 why leave it up to the fans you know why because they're too weak need to do it themselves and then have the fifth player go well, why am i not in why are those two in ahead of me yep why and why not do it for as long as you have waited to do this what is wrong with a 10-member class before some of these guys start dying? I have I have logged it. Isaac Curtis is in his 70s. Ken Riley is dead. Bob Johnson is in his 70s. Ken Anderson is in his 70s. Let's get them all in right now. Well, unfortunately, they are going to be doing this every year, correct? Right, but the, so, no offense. I, if I I'm know, 75, it, I might not see matters. 76. Right, each year matters with some of these guys. I'm with you on that, and I, I totally agree with you. Put them all in right now if you're talking at least your top 10 guys or maybe even a few more than that. But fortunately, some of the guys you're mentioning will hopefully get in in that second or third class at least Yes, to where you know we're not too far away from that date happening. But I think it's uh, kind of typical of the way the Bengals do things, you know, a, a screwed up announcement that kind of loses its luster and then they don't have the spine to actually do it right either. So it'll be yeah, fine. Correct. It'll be better than having nothing. Yes, um, I agree with that. I'm sure the fans will do a good enough job of picking the, the team, but I'm with you. Just will it? Well, here, here's the problem with this. And, and I mean, this. I mean, listen, you never watch Ken Riley play, right? Right. Right. Okay. And fans you never watch the players into all-star games all the time that aren't even. Yes. So yes. They, that. It, it's, it's there's a bad always idea to let fans vote. 
Yes, because it's all recency bias. That's yeah. all it is. And I get that part of it. So instead of letting recency bias, how about people who know the history of your team, which would be huh, those running the team, would be the ones to do it. Now, it there's is season like- ticket holders. So I'm going to guess there's not a lot of younger, younger fans who are season ticket holders, but maybe uh, Grandpa Fred decides, hey, Junior, you want to go ahead and vote on this for me instead of that? I don't know how to use this internet thing. Why don't you vote for me? So it's only season ticket holders that get to vote? Season ticket and suite holders, whatever, but those are season ticket holders too. So yes, those are the only ones allowed to vote. Gotcha. Okay, well, that's a little bit more interesting. A little bit. I mean, some of the season ticket holders probably didn't see Ken Riley play. Oh, guaranteed. A lot of them didn't. Yeah, I mean, guys so, in their 30s so, right now who, let's face I mean, a lot of people in their 30s and 40s are the types of people that buy season tickets. A lot of those people aren't going to remember Ken Riley's career. No, I mean, some of these people go back to probably Carson Palmer's the first quarterback they remember. They don't even remember Boomer. Right. So, I a bad idea. Just a bad idea. But typical. All right. The NFL draft starts three weeks from today on Thursday, April 29th. And during this lead up, the Bengals have become perhaps the most talked about team picking at the top of this year's draft due to the debate over whether or not they should take offensive tackle Panay Sewell or wide receiver Jamar Chase. We'll still have time to debate exactly what the Bengals should do with that pick before the draft. But I'll ask you this right now, Skinny. Are we definitely down to just those two options, Chase or Sewell? Or is there any chance the Bengals have a, a notion to work a trade or draft Kyle Pitts or maybe a linebacker? W- what are yeah, you thinking I, there? I, I think the last two are off the table. I don't see the linebacker option and I don't see the Kyle Pitts option. I just don't. I know Kyle Pitts is so freaking intriguing. Um, It's just in this offense, the tight end is is an afterthought to some degree. And I think for them, um, it's either I'm filling an offensive line need for now in the future, or I am filling the wide receiver need that we did not fill this off season. And, And to me, I think that's what it comes down to. I do think the potential to trade backwards has to be in play. Um, Especially if, um, let's just assume, I mean, we, 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 it's not even a subject. There are going to be the first three are going to be quarterback, quarterback, quarterback. We all know that. We don't know when, you know, other than Trevor Lawrence, how two and three will officially go, but we know quarterback, quarterback, quarterback. That puts Atlanta on the clock. And Atlanta could go a bunch of different directions. They could take Kyle Pitts off the board at that point. They could also somebody trading up to, to him. And really, there's only two teams probably left that are in that trade market to go up. Uh, for a quarterback, and that would be Denver at nine and New England at, uh, what are they, 13 or 14? They're in the, the the high teens somewhere. So those are really the only two teams left. So at, at that point, the Bengals, let's just say say somebody decides to trade up with, with Atlanta because they're desperate for that, that quarterback, and that puts the Bengals then in the spot to, to draft one of the two. You know, they can draft the, the best non-quarterback on the board at that point. Um, I'm not so sure. I'm not looking to find a way to, to, to take one of those two guys and then maybe find another partner and give up some capital moving forward. Maybe, hell, maybe a second rounder this year. Maybe uh, a second rounder this year and a first rounder next year and a, and a first rounder the year after. If I can get Chase Sewell or Chase, uh, Jamar Chase and Penny Sewell in this draft, I, I'd find a way to do it. So you wrote something about this on Local 12, and obviously some people were calling you crazy for thinking that that's a possibility. Well, and I, and I, I trust me, I agree with them based on the, but go ahead and set the scenario up. Sorry about that. I yeah. agree with them for starters, but go ahead. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that was pretty much it is just that I, I guess how realistic do you think that could be that the Bengals could maybe, you know, draft with their fifth pick and then what trade for someone else's high pick. Well, so, yeah, so here's what I did. 10? So, so, so I went in just playing around with the pro football focus simulator and listen, 
Everybody loves pro football focus, right? They can do no wrong, correct? Correct. Okay. So I did it in their simulator. I didn't do it in Fred, Fred from uh, Fred from Yonkers simulator or Joe from Jersey simulator or, or oh, Mikey's jo- draft.com dude, simulator. Joe's simulator is good though. You got it. I did, Joe I did from Jersey the, is a nice simulator. I did it on the PFF simulator, which if you propose a trade with a team, they will, they will turn them down. If they think the value is a terrible trade. Like if I said, Hey, Detroit, I want your seventh pick and I'll give you my two seventh rounders. It says no. So I just kept building on a, on a, on a spot to finally where it agreed that I could get Detroit's pick at seven. In addition to keeping my pick at five okay, and it took you. the following trade. And I don't think it's realistic either. Mind you, I, I told people on Twitter, read the story. I even admitted, I don't think this is feasible, but it accepted my trade offer, which was the Bengals third round pick this year. Their two seventh round picks this year and their first round pick next year for Detroit seven. Do I think it's realistic? Probably not, but the simulator took it. So guess what I did? I took Sewell. I had Miami in between. I sweated them a little bit. Miami ended up taking pits, I believe. And then I took, uh, I took chase at seven. I could have probably flip-flopped it, probably taken chase. Um, Cause I think that's where they're probably leaning. I, I think, I think they're leaning more chase than they are Sewell. Cause I think there's enough second round offensive linemen that can fill that, that cause they don't, they don't have a definitive need in my opinion heading into this year on the offensive line. They obviously do with Riley Reef moving forward. And I think you'd like to add a, a, a guy you can kind of ease into the mix and then uh, moves into the starting lineup next year. And I think I think that's why they will go. If, if they stay at five and don't do anything with it, I do think it's Chase is almost definitive in my mind. I know everybody keeps saying either or. And that's kind of how I wrote the column. I mean, that's been the question of either or. It's come down to is it either Chase or is it Sewell? And I said, well, how about a way we can get them both? And so I did. Again, do I think it's realistic? No, probably not. But the PFF simulator allowed me to do it, and they're a they're a know it all. They know everything. But end of the day, you think it's going to be one of those two guys? Yeah, I don't see any or a trade backwards if they feel like, you know what, we like all three wide receivers, which are Chase Waddle and uh, and Devonte Smith, and we like Slater and Sewell, and we feel if we go backwards, you know, again, let's say Atlanta keeps their pick at four, for example, Rick, and they decide to take let's just go Pitts or Patrick Sertain or whatever. They, they don't t- take, take Sewell or Chase or any of the wide receivers. They take one of those guys, which is a, is a possibility. Then at five, the Bengals are in that spot where I think that's where a team goes, all right, we're getting our quarterback. Let's, let's go ahead. And if you're the Bengals, if it's Denver, for example, and you can get some extra draft capital from Denver to move down to nine, and you know Denver's taking a quarterback, well, then you're all you're sweating out is picks six, seven, and eight. And so I've still got five potential pick, five potential guys that I like and I don't, I'll let them kind of make the choice for me. I like Sewell and Slater the same, for example. I like the, the separation. In, and again, I'm just I'm surmising this is the Bengals. The separation between Chase and Waddle and Smith isn't big maybe on their board. Um, so I think at that point, you, you do make that, that move to, to, to go backwards to nine. And you still get, um, you still get a, a quality player that you still rate pretty highly. So I think they got a lot of things they can do with it. I just don't think it's Pitts or a linebacker. I think it's Chase, Sewell, or go backwards. That's interesting uh, because I was, I, I agree that it was Chase or Sewell more than likely, but I, I think it's interesting that you kind of just sold me on the potential of trading back, and I think I'd be fine with it now. Be, but prior to you answering that question, I was of the opinion of, of the Bengals have a top five pick. Either one of their top two choices right now, Chase or Sewell, seem like great options and difference makers potentially as soon as their rookie year that I felt like, don't screw this up. Don't get cute. Well, and I was, don't and try to outsmart well, people. Just take a difference maker at the top of the draft and do it. But the way you just sold it to me, it's like, you're still probably getting one of those guys. And even if not, then if you're, if you're not getting one of those guys, you probably feel really good about 
one of the other difference makers that you wanted at the top of the draft, maybe even with that fifth pick. So uh, yeah, if you can pull that off, then I, I guess I'm not against that either. Yeah. And listen, if, if they so choose that they've rated Jamar chase so high, and I think it feels like it's that direction only because what have they not done in, in free agency? Rick, they haven't the even one sniffed a receiver, thing? right? The and, Galladay and so, thing was a joke, right? And if you look at the, the roster as is, no offense, and this is no knock on Auden Tate. Auden Tate is not a starting level wide receiver for 16 games. Great fourth piece, great guy to get, you know, 25, 30 snaps a game, those kind of in certain packages. But if you're trotting out T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd, and, and Auden Tate, you're again going to be playing offense in a phone booth. You've got no field stretcher. And to me, that's where I think they've kind of zeroed in, in my opinion, on that, on that receiver spot at five, just because they haven't sniffed it. Now, that Maybe in the next couple of weeks, they, they find that guy out there somewhere and go ahead and make that decision and pull the trigger before the draft, which then I think will le- let you know which position they're leaning in then. But to me, I think it just feels like at five, they're getting their guy, and that guy is, is Jamar Chase. I think that makes sense. Skinny, with all of that being said, there was one more little bit of news about the draft that came out this past week that I wanted to get your thoughts on. Should those two guys' pro days change our opinion at all? about how you feel one way or the other? No, I did a piece with Chris Rankle on Sunday, and we went over a handful of guys' pro days. And before we even started the segment on air, I said, listen, I, I'm doing this segment because you asked, and I don't mind it. But I said, I think pro days are, are other than some affirmation, much like the combine, or an utter and absolute waste of time. I think the one thing pro days do is you get a chance to see, is a guy healthy? Um, are, are some of the, the, the measurables real? Um, can the guy run as fast as he looks on, on film, some of those things, but for the most part, they do absolutely nothing for me. Nothing. I mean, I, it's funny. I, I think it was Dan Orlovsky that talked about, you, you've seen the throw that Zach Wilson made where he's rolling to his left and kind of throws it all the way back across the field to his right yes. to a receiver open, yeah. which just shows ridiculous arm strength. And he goes, he goes, that's great to see. And it's fun to see. He goes, trust me in the NFL, that ball's intercepted <laughs> and he's right. I mean, that ball is intercepted. It's fun to watch. But he's right. So what did that really show you? He threw a ball that he probably shouldn't throw in a game ever, 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 never, ever. <laughs> so um, so what does that show you? So, yeah, for a lot of the pro day, I mean, the arm length of Penny Sewell, all right, he's a little short by a quarter of an inch. So what? Can you block or are you athletic? Can you play? What do you believe on tape? So, no, I, again, I think sometimes maybe for an injured player, it gives you some affirmation of, Hey, he's still running at a four, three, five level. You know, he still can get out of his breaks. He doesn't show any any um, trepidation doing some of this stuff. I think some of those are helpful. I think otherwise, pfft, it's a waste of time. Yeah. So uh, for the most part, I don't care a whole lot about it. I will say though, if I'm drafting a receiver specifically, top five in the draft, I want them to test out the way Jamar Chase did. Well, yeah, no, no. I, I, I want yeah, you I to think, be but, that but, physical but, freak with a four three forty, an over forty inch vertical, all of that stuff. Like, if, but I think if all I'm that is you just, top five. All that is, Rick, is just affirmation of what right. you've seen on film. And That's I agree. And I agree with you on that. But in the past, I mean, there oh, have let me, been let me, some let me guys. Tell you this. If I see a pro day where a guy does that and yet I go back and look at film and he isn't very productive and somehow he's not getting open, that's not going to change my opinion of that guy. Right, exactly, and I totally agree with you there, Um, but I would just say, again, if I'm drafting that high, like, for instance, Peter Warwick was, what, a top five pick? They picked him at fourth, I think. That's a guy where, if I'm drafting a a Peter Warwick type, and he ran, I think, a four, five, something. Yeah, it was was alarming. Right, that I, I don't... I, that would concern me now. Sure. Or if the guy, you know, it doesn't have much of a vertical leap and he's a guy like Jamar Chase who's supposed to go up and win balls over tops 
guys like he did in college. You see that's his game, and then all of a sudden he only has a 30-inch vertical. I would be questioning some things. If I'm drafting a top five wide receiver, I want him to check all the boxes. And fortunately, Jamar Chase did that. I mean, he looks like an absolute physical freak, just as he did on film. Some people thought he was going to be slower than what he tested at, and he was one of the fastest times. So, yeah, I mean, for me, all it did is said, yep, if they take Jamar Chase, I'm fine with that. There is zero red flags there. Yeah, and the whole arm length with Penny Sewell, as much as, again, I've I've bemoaned drafting a lineman fifth, that doesn't change my opinion. If if you've seen on film and you've watched enough, if you're the Bengals, and you rate him as highly as, as you do, Okay, that's your rating. I don't know if I always agree with it, but that's fine. I'm not going to knock you because, well, you know, remember they drafted Penny Sewell and he, you know, he had a short arms. That wasn't why he sucked. Tell Cedric away he had long arms and he sucked. What does that mean? Right, exactly. I, I do not care at all about the quarter of an inch shorter arms thing, especially from a guy who is massive. Yes. I mean, if he's like undersized and that's an issue right, for an offensive right. lineman, but right. he's a huge dominant human being with slightly shorter arms. I mean, a quarter of an inch, you know? So yeah, I just can't see that being that big of a deal. All right, let's uh, move on one more time here before we get to our betting segment. The college basketball season came to a close on Monday night with Baylor blowing out Gonzaga 86 to 70 Baylor guard. Jared Butler was named the tournament's most outstanding player. And with that, We move full speed ahead in the offseason of uncertainty, especially from a local's perspective. (laughs) Uh, Skinny, looking back at Gonzaga's performance in the Final Four, do you think the Bulldogs were overrated? I don't. I know that's a a fair question to ask because I just don't because they were so dominant. I think they ran into the following. I think they ran into a UCLA team that, that... Listen, they have some talent. I think you'd agree with that. And they were playing they the best player in the tournament. Right time. And they had the best player in the tournament in Johnny Juzang. No question. And I'll be frank. I completely blew it on Baylor. I underestimated them. I didn't think highly of them. I, I in fact, in everything I did from every pool I made of picking players to for points. And, you know, you have to project some of that out of how far you think these guys are going to go to picking brackets, to picking different games. I had them gone by the second round. They were an after. I thought they were losing to either Carolina or Wisconsin. It didn't matter to me which one they played in my mind. They were losing to either one of them. And I think really the tournament was more about Baylor earned that. They're pretty damn good, and they earned it. Um, yep. And, and and look, Gonzaga just picked a bad, bad, bad time to have a bad seven or eight-minute stretch of basketball. And some of that, Baylor had to do with that. So tip of the cap um, to, to them. Uh, you know, I think you're going to disagree with that. I do wonder if that zero eventually got to Gonzaga. I, I said I think it really weighs on you when you get to the Final Four. I thought it weighed on that Kentucky team. Maybe it had nothing to do with it. And, and bottom line is, I don't think they were overrated A. B, I think it comes back to, I'm just going to tip my cap to Baylor. And you know what? And I'm not knocking you for this, but occasionally you got to do that in life. You just go, you were better. And maybe if we played a seven-game series, we'd be better. Hell, honestly, if you gave me a seven-game series, I think I'd take Gonzaga four games to two. But you don't. You get one, and seven minutes or eight minutes of basketball cost them their, their perfect season in a national championship. And Baylor playing as well as they did cost them two. Okay, so that part's fascinating to me. You, you, think, you still think Gonzaga would win... I do. more than they would lose against Baylor. I so do, do I. I, do. I think we're in the minority, though. I do not think most people feel that way. I think everyone after watching that thinks Baylor is the most dominant team and was undersold all year. And, it, you know, uh, first of all, a lot of people liked Baylor all year more than I did. And yeah, I'll I, admit did, and I was I, wrong I, yeah, about that. I, I, Me too. I'm the same way. Me too. Um, but I still don't look at that and say Baylor was clearly the better team and would win that matchup five out of 10 times. Even I think I would lean Gonzaga as the favorite 
still the next time that they play. I, I know this is yeah, I know this is apples and oranges. Go look back at some of the great NBA seven game series in histories. And occasionally, not even occasionally, there's always a game or two where one team just blows out the other. So if that was a, a, a champion, a one game championship, we go, oh, clearly the Lakers were better than the Celtics. Right. Yet if you go back and look at that series, the Celtics won in four, one in seven games. Well, it's I mean, such, it, we, I, it's so oversimplifying things, but it's such a make or miss sport. Sure. Shooting percentages no mean so much, and it's so easy to just have an off night while the other team is hot. And Baylor was ridiculous. Shooting the ball. Now, their percentages by the end of the game were like under 50%. They didn't look as gaudy as they were, really. But that was because, like, in the final few minutes when they were running clock out and trying to right, end take, the game. Taking a, a right. bad shot, usually. Yeah. Right. Just, yeah. But for what, while the game was in question, they were shooting essentially 60% from the field and making every three-pointer that they took. It was just absurd shooting display on, on their part. So when you have something like that going on, it's I don't know that it's easy to replicate. And on the flip side, I think you had a Gonzaga team that I don't think I don't buy the whole they were drained from a crazy good game against UCLA or anything like I that. I don't buy that one either. What I do buy is they got punked a little early. They saw Baylor start hot as hell on offense. They they couldn't guard anything while they were trying to switch all they the couldn't screens, find a everything they, on the perimeter. They, 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 they couldn't find a defense that they could get a stop. Yeah, Timmy couldn't guard anybody on the court. They couldn't guard ball screens at all. The switching wasn't working, which is the zone didn't butter. work. And Baylor was making everything to start. And I think Gonzaga got a little shell-shocked. I think yeah. they, they got a little tight. And I don't think that was as much about the zero in their loss column as it was, oh, crap, here we are in the championship game. And that we, we don't have an answer. You know, all, all year they've been this dominant team that's played with the lead and all of a sudden they're behind and it was just an avalanche coming down on them the way Baylor kept shooting the ball. So, yeah, I, it, was, it was a great game. It was a great performance by Baylor. I don't see Baylor as like an all-time good team necessarily. I, I think they're an interesting roster construction, a really good example of what basketball looks like in 2021 being that they're the best shooting team in the country and they spread you out and they play a lot of small guys on the floor at once. I think it's funny based on that performance and the way they played in the final four, that people are viewing them as this super tough grind you out and beat you up type team. And that really wasn't their MO at all. They were totally a small ball spread you out and shoot the hell out of it from three type team that just happened to punk Gonzaga physically in the, the finals, but well, and, and let, let me give some credit to Scott Drew. And no matter what you think of Scott, Drew, yeah. he comes off as shady, but let, let me do this. And it kind of goes back to what you said. You know, some of his early good teams at Baylor were those kind of grind you teams that beat you with some length Playing and, zone and, and defense. Had, right. And instead now he's kind of changed that up a little bit. So credit to him for that. Now, some of it is he got transfer personnel. You got to, you got to dictate to what your personnel does, but kudos to him for, you know, kind of saying this was the style I played and won with. But now I've got these guys. I need to do this. And that got him a title. Yeah, I thought he did a, a really good job with this team. And I think, again, his style is basketball in 2021. That's the, the easiest way to win is by making a ton of three pointers and having a team that can really break you down, be hard to guard. They were better offensively than they were defensively, despite what they looked like in the finals against Gonzaga all year. They were a team that just made a ton of shots and were awesome offensively. And I think that's the easiest path to being a top team in college basketball in this era. But yeah. all that being said, um, I don't have them as an all-time good team. I think Gonzaga is. I still think Gonzaga is an all-time good team, despite what they showed in 
the finals. To me, well, I'll go back East- to that Kentucky, that Kentucky team that was 38 and 0 and lost. They're an all-time great team. And just again, but you got to finish the deal before you get in that conversation a lot of times. You do. And and deservedly so. They're not going to be mentioned in that conversation. And and I understand that, but I think they actually were an all-time good team. And I, I actually think the UCLA performance against them in the final four was more impressive because UCLA got the real Gonzaga that yes. they played with the real Gonzaga playing at Gonzaga's best, at least offensively. And UCLA just made matched it. every shot, right? All these just tough mid range isolation shots, even against pretty good defense Baylor. They didn't get the real Gonzaga and they deserve credit for that. They caused that to a certain extent, but they, they shell shocked Gonzaga a little bit, I think early in, and they never really got the, the full deal. So uh, it, it was a really anticlimactic finish. It was a boring finals game, unfortunately. It really and was. All of my takes were so bad throughout the tournament that I guess I'm just <laughs> glad it's over because I had zero read on it the whole time. But your thoughts on the season as a whole, if any, to wrap it up? Um, I'm glad that we didn't panic to the point of not having a season and we tried to fight through it. We knew there were going to be COVID stoppages. Some were worse than others for teams, um, but we got through it. And honestly, the tournament, uh, tournament came off without a hitch. I, I know there's now some talk of, of kind of doing the one site thing down the road. Um, I, I'm not opposed to that, Rick, and I'll tell you why. I used to the, the NCA has homogenized things so much that I'll be honest, when I'm watching a game, and I'm, I'm you might be the same way. Remember when they used to have, you know, you play at a Rupp Arena, or you'd play at, at, at whatever, pick whatever arena it is for early games or regional tournament games, and they they, they left the old court, whoever that team was, yeah. their, their original court was out there. So you'd know where that was. They've homogenized this stuff so much that I'll be watching a first or second round game, and I have to look at the baseline where it'll say like St. Louis, Missouri, or Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Eugene, Oregon, to know where in the hell that game's being played. So they've homogenized it anyway. So honestly, I don't care. You want to play it at one site or, or one state again? go for it. It was fine. But bottom line is we got a season and we got a conclusion to a season and we didn't have a fluky champion. We had a really good champion. So I, I'm glad for it. I'm, I'm glad it worked out kind of the way it did. And then hopefully now we're kind of through this and we get back to next season. And we get ourselves a regular full normal season with no stoppages. Yeah. I mean, we had the Keontae Johnson scare from Florida when he collapsed. Which and I still never heard a resolution to that. Have you? I, I, I do believe they said that it was not related to or a result COVID. of a, a previous COVID-19 diagnosis, okay. although originally they thought it might have been. I right. think the end result later was that they, they decided it wasn't. Now, do they know for sure or not? Who knows? Then you had the Burt Smith, the referee who collapsed in the NCAA tournament, and initially people were obviously very worried that that was going to be a COVID-related thing, but they have since come out and said that his was unrelated to, to COVID-19 and it was another health-related issue. So, you know, wh- whether that's 100% known or not, I'm not sure, but either way, the fact that we didn't have more problems like that, because when the Keontae Johnson situation happened, and especially when people were worried that it was COVID-related. And that was early in the process. It it. it it was really a scare that, okay, how many of these are there going to be? How right. many lives are you putting at risk? And how dark is this going to get to play this season? And it never really came to fruition. None of that happened, fortunately. And that's, if we were going to have this season, thank God it didn't come down to that, where all of a sudden, you know, you had three, four, five kids collapsing sure. and you've got to cancel the thing because that would have been uh, really disheartening and and you would have felt 
really kind of selfish and bad for wanting no to go question. on and be entertained when these kids were legitimately at risk. So, yeah, I mean, that to me, that was one of the the really nice parts of the season is it didn't become that it, it it was kind of what we thought it was going in for elite athletes. Yeah, they may get it, but most of them are going to be just fine. And fortunately that's the way it seemed to play out. Yeah. And la- lastly, um, for the vast majority of our listening audience, which are UC Xavier, Kentucky, maybe Ohio state fans, basically, you know, the, the, the NKU as well. Uh, hopefully we don't have another season like this past one. <laughs> I mean, th- that is no one of the craziest seasons in local basketball in, in probably my my years of, of covering sports in, in this area where literally the postseason was a big, fat dud. Total dud and just really a, a disjointed year. I mean, with the, the stoppages for all the local teams, it, Xavier played one game over the course of an entire month at one point during the season. That wasn't an enjoyable time for content creators or fans wanting to watch them play. Um, UC had multiple stoppages late in the season. So it was just such a weird year. And the fact that fans weren't ever really able to go watch their teams play locally just sucked. So looking forward towards a better year. And really it's going to be a fascinating season locally for all these teams. I mean, Xavier is essentially Travis deals in a must win year. UC has an absolute disaster on their hands, but with that will come a new coach, a full new direction and, Obviously, that's an exciting time, even if it's yeah, even I'm, if you're I'm in looking, a bad spot. I'm looking forward to Evan Prater playing the three spot this year when they need <laughs> players. Uh, and then Kentucky. I mean, you've got the whole what's next for John Calipari in Kentucky. And Cal swears, look out. Cal swears it. Look out. Don't yep, sleep on they're us. They're going to have to play them next year. They're going to have to play us next year. The people that are talking. Yep. So, yep, uh, we'll see. We'll see. And NKU. A lot of positive vibes coming from the Norse after the way they finished this season and the guys they have coming back. So it's really going to be a fun offseason and college basketball season next year. I'm looking forward to it a lot and happy to finally be back in the gym. Yep, no question. All right, Skinny, we've got a betting segment to get through real quick. I'm not going to be of much use during this betting segment, but you'll help us out here. Uh, To wrap up the college basketball betting, I finished two and two in the final four, both of the totals I hit and obviously missed both of the the actual picks there. You went three and one. You missed the Houston and Baylor game um, on the total, I believe. Okay. Uh, And you are 26 and 22 overall on the season. A little profit there. A little profit with the finish strong. I was a putrid at 20 and 28 this basketball season. Fadrick B. And I was, I believe, even or one game up going into the tournament. Wow, that's funny. Tournament was not kind to you at all. No, it was an absolute disaster. So there you go. Uh, Masters is this weekend. It starts today as we're recording this on Thursday. Actually, they're already underway. What do you got for us? Any picks you like? Because you can still place picks on a guy to win. The odds will just change a little bit as we go. That, that's correct. And, and some guys that have not teed off, you can probably still get them in if, if, that, if that's the case. But anyway, so here's what I did. I had a hundred bucks. I put in a pot. I, I had won a little bit of a parlay over the weekend um, with, with my uh, Saturday final four selections where um, I hit that parlay for literally, I had 35 to win 101. So I put that 101 back in the master's pot. I took, um, I took 30 of those dollars and put them on Justin Thomas at 11 to one to win. I think he's down to 10 to one, but I got, I got 30 to win 300 on him. I put 30 on Tony Finau to finish top five. Tony Finau cannot win tournaments, but he is a, feels like he's a top five machine. Um, and, and I got pretty good odds. I got 30 at six and a half to one. I got 30 to win 200 on him. 
And then I spread out my other 40 bucks um, on different guys at like $8 increments. I've got uh, Scotty Scheffler at 40 to one. He's actually down to 35 to one, but I got him at 40 to one to win. I took um, Colin Morikawa at 30 to one to win. I took Patrick Cantley at 22 to one to win. Um, and I had one other one. Oh, Matthew Fitzpatrick at 45 to one. And then I had $5 left. So I looked for a long, long shot and I found my guy at 350 to one. I got $5 to win 1700 Rick root for me on Mackenzie Hughes. You remember know that folks, I'm going to go over to Indiana day and put, put five bucks down on Mackenzie Hughes. I like that. Yeah, you, you, you may, you may regret that, but, uh, but anyway, I, I decided to take a flyer. So those are my master selections. There you go. My Trust favorite me. tournament. I'll be watching it on the internet all day today. I'll have, I'll have amen corner up on the internet. I'll have the regular feed up on TV while I'm trying to do some work as well. Just to go back to my losing ways, this NCAA tournament for the yes. finals, I had Gonzaga, everything I had them first half. I had them, uh, minus four and a half. I had them DraftKings offered a promotion where you could get them plus four and a half at plus 100 odds. So I had that going oh too. It was oh a limited my. bet. You were only allowed to put like 25 bucks on it, but still, still I had action on pretty much every way you could have Gonzaga had some player totals in that as well. And my brother wasn't going to be able to get over there. Right. So he asked me to put in a parlay for him of Baylor plus four and a half and the under which both cashed the parlay. So not only did I lose every single bet in the finals with like 10 things on it, I then had to pay my brother out 150 bucks or whatever oh, it was for his parlay that he hit. Uh, it was just an absolute disaster for me. Well, and, and I feel bad because I called you after Suggs banked in the three on Saturday and you had shown me your ticket. You had a nice ticket on, uh, on Jalen Suggs to be the most outstanding player. And I told you, I said, boy, you got a pretty good step in the right direction there, my man. Looked great going in, didn't it? Yeah, it sure did. Yeah, it didn't, didn't play out well for your boy. No. All right, not. let's get to uh, Ask Skinny Anything. We've got some good questions this week, and we'll start with a sports-related question, as we typically do. Someone wants to know, what do you think is next for Sean Miller, who just got fired at Arizona? He'll sit out for a year or two. Um, I'm going to guess ESPN will pick him up, although I can't imagine. He's, he's, he, he would be so bad in that role. But well, Woj, Woj said – NBA assistant it's been he's been approached about it the last couple of years he's turned it down but that he's been interested and that that's the the thought right now is that he'll go to the NBA yeah you, uh, I think Kelvin Sampson went that route right. did he not after the whole yeah. NBA and it makes a ton of sense you disappear yeah. people forget you're there yeah and I did I forgot Kelvin Sampson was an NBA assistant and then resurrected himself into into a coach who took a team to a final four and people now talk glowingly of Kelvin Sampson yeah and, and rightfully so as a coach I mean just from a pure coaching perspective the dude's well, a great. And what he got in trouble for is something that's totally legal now. Yes, correct. It was making too many calls. Correct. To recruits, um, which are unlimited now. And, and Sean is tied to this, but Sean has not been implicated yet, correct? Yeah. I mean, I guess some people feel that he is very much, but yeah, I, I guess it I, hasn't I mean, been that, proven. Right. So yeah, go away for a couple years and kind of let, let time heal all wounds and he'll be back in the college coaching ranks within three to five years, in my opinion. Yeah, so I think it's max three years that he'll be out of college basketball. I think that's kind of who he is as a basketball coach. You know, maybe he'll get to the NBA, just really love that life and not recruiting and decide he's going to try to work his way up to be an NBA head coach. But I mean, Quinn this, Snyder did it. He was a scumbag. Yeah, but at this point in his in Sean Miller's life, I don't know that, you know, I don't know that he's going to start at the bottom and work his way up to become an NBA head coach. That seems like it would be kind of a hard road for him at this point. Started from the bottom, now he's here. Let's be let's be frank. He's going to go to the NBA, and next year, 
at the very least, he's going to get the Rick Pitino offers, like the Ionas of the world are going to say, right, hey, sure. we'll take you yeah. back right now. Sure. Then the year after that, it's going to be back to any high major job that's coming open. People are going to have him included on the hot board and say, you probably have to call Sean Miller and see what he's up to. People do not care about this stuff. They act like they care in the moment, but two years later, three years later, it's a redemption story. and Everybody's on board and wants to talk about what a great job he did of turning things around. So this is not going to hinder him from becoming a, a high major head coach down the line for probably a pretty good program. And quite honestly, the, 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 if you're a Xavier the, fan, let's be honest, what are you thinking right now? He's going to go with the NBA for two years. And then Travis Steele's got two years left to figure this thing out. And if he doesn't, guess who your first call is going to be? Hmm. Yeah. Which I think now, probably makes a lot of I, sense for everyone involved. And I bet Sean is probably thinking that in the back of his head. I guess the only thing is if he does get officially implicated, you know, and if a show cause comes along, how long is that show cause? If it happens. And that's still an if. Yeah. And I don't know that we're going to get to that point. We'll see. Right. Right. All right. Do you guys think college players will eventually start forming super teams through the transfer portal the same way NBA guys do in free agency? Skinny, I think this is an interesting point. I think it's a great question. I, I yeah, I do. I, 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 and I think to some degree they, they, they do that a little bit now. I Gonzaga mean, the, was kind of that yeah, way this year a little right, bit. Right. I mean, the, the Fab Five kind of did that where they kind of recruited each other to some degree back, you know, in the early nineties. So yeah, I, I think absolutely that, that that's, that's a legitimate possibility. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It just, you have to, you have to do the old, it is what it is. If, if that's what guys want to do and they're all good with it and they're willing to share the ball with one another and put, you know, put team first. Cause it's one thing to say that it's another thing when it's, Hey man, I want shots. No, I want shots. No, I want shots. It, Cause it can implode on you pretty quickly too. But if guys are good with that and they understand that they're going to have to share it and play together, um, I can see it happening. Yeah, I think there's a few things, though, that you have to consider when thinking about how these things would form. So one, a lot of times if you're talking, like we've heard of package deals in the past in recruiting, and a lot of times those don't actually work out. They Kate Cunningham. Kate Cunningham. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the, so a lot of times when you try to do these these package deals, they don't actually work out, but they start as two guys who are from the same hometown, two guys who are friends growing up on the same AAU team. The problem with that is, okay, maybe you have two guys who are good enough to play at the high major level who are like that. Do you have three to form a super team? Do you have four? Like a lot of times you aren't going to have guys who are connected early on like that. So it's going to be a, have to be a connection where, hey, we just want to join the same team because we vaguely know each other and we're all good. And I'm going to convince you, Joe Smith from Northwestern, to, to come join me at Kentucky as a transfer and I'm already here with another guy I, like that. That's the thing is I don't know that there's going to be tight bonds among these guys who are at these other schools. And the other thing you see a lot with preps basketball and even in colleges, all these guys have the goal of getting to the NBA right, and they want the right. best situation for themselves. I don't know that they're all unselfish enough to say, I want to go take the chance on being the third best guy at that school. If I'm a, a big time player at the high major I mean, level. I mean, I'll be, fr I'll be quite frank. Who wants to be the Chris Bosh at in, in college basketball, you know, well, but, in the but, NBA, but you're in millions of dollars and you can have a long career in college. You might've killed your career if you didn't put up good enough numbers to reach the league. Yeah. But hear me out on this. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm damning myself a little bit for this, but, and I don't think these were guys talking to each other to do it, but, but how many of Cal, Cal's guys on some of those great teams were fourth and fifth options that were clear cut NBA guys and were willing to sacrifice to do that. Yeah, they did that, it. 
That's true. And that's, you know, that's one of the amazing things Cal's been able to do is not only get all those guys to come to Kentucky, but also make the egos work. But that's a, that's a thing where he recruited a bunch of different guys and got them to agree to go yes. there. Yeah. I don't yeah. know that we're going to be able to see a lot of guys who willingly say, yeah, let's all join up and go here. I think what you'll see is a team that recruited well, Maybe, you know, maybe already had a guy in place who was a great freshman. They recruited another great freshman or two in the next class. And then they go find that transfer portal guy right. the following right. year where you're adding like one or two more pieces to a few good ones that you already had. I do but, think but it is a possibility towards that, yeah. but it is a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think this is going to change the, the, the free agency thing that we're basically going to see in college basketball now is going to change how these kids operate and we're already seeing them take more control over their situations. So this is certainly on the table now. I'm just not sure if it's going to play out as frequently and guys are going to be looking for it as much as they do in the NBA, where it's the clear path to an NBA title. And it's, it's much easier to swallow being the third guy or fourth guy on a, a loaded NBA roster where you're making millions of dollars and ensuring job security. Yeah. I think it's a great question though. It is. Skinny, what's your go-to food play at the ballpark if you're just going as a fan? Um, pretty easy for me. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's either a met or a hot dog with sauerkraut on it and a, and a beer. Pretty simple. I'm a pretty simple guy. And then I'll, I'll probably get a bag of peanuts for munching on later. I, I'm not a big ballpark gourmet or big ballpark Same. food guy. I, I, I got to have a dog though. I mean, um, and, and then peanuts just to nosh on on the side with, with when I'm drinking a beer or two. So yeah, that's it's pretty simple for me. I'm mostly a beer flavored beer guy at the uh, yeah. ballpark. Yeah. That's my, my, my go-to is usually tie on a nice little buzz before and after the ballpark and then stop at like Hooters on the river or something like that. Before yeah. It's good call. I go home good to, call. Right. to sober good back call. up. Um, but I, I do like the, the nachos. I think if I'm going to do it, it's either a hot dog, the very simple hot dog or the nachos play. Everything else to me is just like too messy and too much handling to, to be eating in a, chair like that with no nothing over you i just i'm not a big ballpark or stadium eater to be quite honest yeah and, and I, i'm gonna feel bad for saying this because my daughter works in human resources for kroger but that kroger meal deal is not a deal there's no deal to the kroger meal deal it's a hot dog and a drink and either some kind of crap on the side like now i think this week is twizzlers for like 10 bucks that ain't a deal people there's no deal to that that's not a deal well, I, I mean, a, it, listen, I can buy a hot dog and eat it before I come to the game. If need be, I can bring in my own water and I can bring my own Twizzler. So that's not a meal deal. Stop with the meal deal. It's I, the Kroger I, meal steal. They're stealing your money. I, I actually think one, you have a connection here. So maybe you should get that changed at Kroger. Yeah, throw your call. influence around. And uh, second of all, I, I need you next time you go to figure out how to sneak some fully made hot dogs into the game. Like make your yeah, hot I'll dogs just, beforehand I'll, and then sneak them in. Oh, you! Oh, I guarantee you can do that. There's a yeah, you could. I, I, I'd love to see you do it. I'll figure that out. All right. The is Bengals that a hot dog in your pocket? Why, yes, it is. Or are you just happy to see me? The see Bengals me. Yep. seem to have flipped from a strategy of addressing the cornerback position, that's defensive back position, with high draft picks to relying on free agency. Seems like a significant adjustment for a team bemoaned for being stuck in their ways. Thoughts on this? That's a good point. I, I, I had not thought of that. Um and I don't know if that's coincidental either. Um, and to the to the questioner's point, I mean, you know, Drake Kirkpatrick was a first rounder. I mean, at one point they, they had nothing but first rounders in the secondary. Leon Hall, um, Drake Kirkpatrick, um, you know, uh, Darquez Denard was a first rounder. Will Jackson was a first rounder, and they all kind of flamed out in separate ways, right? I mean, Quez, you know, or Dre just kind of got injured at the end and wasn't ever as good as he thought he was, and just kind of fizzled out. 
Darquez could never stay healthy enough, despite the fact I thought he was a really solid nickel corner when he was healthy. And Will just never became the guy. And so I think to some degree, they've, they've almost been forced to fill needs through free agency right now, because I think they've also had other more definitive needs at the top of the draft. Uh, again, I go back to some of those guys were first rounders. If we go back to the last handful of drafts after those guys were taken, they took John Ross in the first round. Um, thinking they were filling a, a huge void with a speed wide receiver. Took Billy Price in the first round because they thought they were filling a huge void at center. Took Jonah Williams in the first round because they thought they needed to fill a huge void at left tackle. And then took Joe Burrow, no-brainer, in the first round last year. So I think there's, I think there's some coincidence to it where they've had to fill almost out of necessity through free agency. But maybe it is an organizational change. I, I don't think it is. I think it's more coincidental. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I hadn't, like you said, I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective either, but it, it's worth noting, I guess. Uh, yeah. If Skinny had to choose between a vintage sports car of his choice or a luxurious two-week tropical vacation, who you got? I'm not a big car guy, man. I, I'm driving a 2013 Camry, and it's not because I'm cheap. It's just because I just don't care enough to go buy a new car, and maybe it is because I'm cheap. I'm taking the two-week vacation in a heartbeat. I'm just, I'm not, I've never been a car guy. Yeah, I'm, so I wouldn't want a vintage sports car. I want something new if I'm getting a car. First of all, I want it to be as luxurious and like all the bells and whistles and, and I'm still Bluetooth taking a vacation audio that I can get. Well, I'm just saying if I've got the car choice, it's not a vintage sports car. That's not my choice. But I don't know. This is a tough one because I'm a big experience guy. Like initially, I'd much rather have a vacation over having a nice car. But uh, you're going to get a lot more use out of the car. And I don't have to be on vacation. I kind of like being home and working and stuff like that. So if it's going to improve my everyday life, like, you know, giving me a Tesla or something like that for free, but is it, or, or again, are you just better off driving the car you've already paid off anyway? Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I'm assuming I'm getting this for free. I'm certainly well, not yeah, yeah, paying yeah, for yeah, a more right. expensive car. Cause I, I'm with you. I'm not a, I'm a used car guy. I don't like having a nice car because I don't keep up with things. I'll, I'll ruin a nice car and I'll feel bad about it. So right. I purposely have a cheap car so I can slam the doors open into brick walls and whatever else See, happens I, and not think about I, it. I think I get more value out of the two week vacation to be honest with you. I really do. I, I probably would too, if we're being honest, but I don't know. It'd be a tough choice. Uh, Skinny's favorite soundbite, they would drop in on the old radio show. Examples, Dan O'Brien, Rick Aponte, Mirtha Campbell, or Paul Ham for sure. Paul Ham for sure was, was a good one too, but I, I always love Pete Rose's The Seats Are For Asses. I don't know why that always made me laugh, but every time Paul Mason, who was our producer, who put a lot of those, those bits together, and Paul, I think now was actually a, um, I think he's actually running a station in Nashville, uh, but he produced for us when he did a lot of those little bits. That, that was probably one of my favorites. Uh, Mirtha Campbell was a good one when she get dropped in from, from Dan O'Brien. Some of the Dan O'Brien's, Maury, we're going to hit, was always a good one, but just a, just a generic, The Seats Are For Asses were always the best one for me. All right, Skinny, we've got one more left, and this is from our good buddy Mo Egger, which you teased at the top of the show. Yep. Please rank the following careers from worst to best. I'll rattle off these names. Ron Kittle, Juan Samuel, Troy Sadowski, Vern Fleming, Glenn Sutko, Farrell Edmonds, Mia Sarah, Hippolito Pichardo, Shonda Rubin, Winston Kreit, Dickie Thon, Jacob Brumfield, Len Matusek, John Lomax, and Marco Battaglia. I will tell you, I know for sure who Vern Fleming, Jacob Brumfield, John Lomax, and Marco Battaglia are. So I definitely know four of them. 
Ron Sammy, Kittle. Who's Ron Kittle? I feel like I know that name too. Ron Ron Kittle was a former baseball rookie of the year back in '83 with the White Sox. Big home run hitting guy. Okay, it's when Where it's I when Tony Larusa managed the White Sox, and he actually managed them to a uh, to a playoff appearance in Ron Kittle's rookie year of '83. Yeah, so. you have informed me. Mia Sarah is the girl from Ferris Bueller's There's, Day Off. Yes, correct. The uh, the the girlfriend. Okay, so I know who she is then. Yeah, that's about it. Jake. Yeah, I, I uh, uh, the other ones I don't think I have any any clue. So you sent this to me this morning at 8.15 because I do have to do a little homework to, you know, I, I, and funny part is I knew exactly who all these people were, but I just had to do some homework just to give myself a, a little bit of, uh, of background. And, and I'm going to be interested to see how, how our guy Mo ranks these. I think he and I can agree. I'm going to rank them worst to first, okay? We, is, that what, is that what you wanted? Because that's how I'm going to rank them. Yeah, that's fine. Worst to first. Com- coming in worst on the list is Glenn Sutko, who played for the Reds in 1990 and 1991. For his Major League Baseball career, he went one for 11 with seven strikeouts. Pretty easy number 15 on the list. Yes? Yes. Okay. Number 14 comes Marco Battaglia, one of the all-time great Bengals busts, was a second-round pick of the Bengals in 96, wound up playing with five different teams through 2003, and wound up with 71 career NFL catches. Not much for a second-round pick. Think, honestly, think Drew Sample light. Marco, Marco Battaglia just screams crappy Bengals football to me like he is one of the faces of the the dark days of Bengals football another name I will put in that same vein is Scott Kuistra when I think Scott Kuistra I think crappy Bengals training camp knowing going into the season they're only going to win four games K-O-O-I-S-T-R-A I think it's Kuistra but that's okay I, I know the guy you're talking about where, where would you think a Marco Battaglia would go to college mm, Colorado State no, no, complete opposite ends. Rutgers. He's a come on. Marco Battaglia is a Rutgers. That's a that's a Jersey guy, right? Come on, fair. Man. That's come fair. On. So he comes in 14th on the list. 13th is Winston Kreit, who was a uh, a player at Texas A&M, who actually led him to the tournament in 1987. That was their last appearance until one Billy Clyde Gillespie took them in 2006. He got a cup of coffee in the NBA with the Suns um, in 87, 88, didn't play very much, then went overseas and played through 97. And his claim to fame is he was the French second division foreign MVP in 1993. Winston Kreit comes in at 13th on the list, one rung ahead of Marco Battaglia. Next comes... Troy Sadowski, and, and he probably should be below Marco Battaglia, but I didn't expect much from Troy Sadowski. He bounced around. He was with the Bengals for three years, also played with the Falcons, the Chiefs, uh, Pittsburgh, and Jacksonville. In fact, truth be told, I'm going to flip him. He's going to 14th now. Battaglia is going to 13th. Kreit's going to 12th. So I'm, I'm going to change my mind like on Troy it. Sadowski. Good he adjustment. Comes to 14th on the list. Here's his career. 23 catches for 152 yards, no touchdowns. Out of his 23 receptions, Rick, out of his 23 receptions, I don't know why I find this funny, but I do. He only had three of those converted into first downs. So he's a dink and dunk guy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Speaking of that, in 1994 with the Bengals, 11 catches for 54 yards. Wow. How about the average on that? Yeah. He goes to 14 on the list. I'm sorry. I screwed him up. He should be 14th for sure. <laughs> so Batagli's 13th, Kreit is 12th, which brings us to number 11, one Len Matuzak. Proud graduate of Moeller High School, where he's a baseball and basketball star. Actually, a great hoops player in high school, believe it or not. He is the guy who took over for Pete Rose at first base with the Phillies in 1984 after the Phillies let Pete walk to the Montreal Expos, but uh, didn't have much of a career. 234 career hitter, 30 home runs in his career, also played a little bit for the Dodgers. Um, so he comes in at 11th on the list. 10th is your guy, Jacob Brumfield. Yes, Jacob Brumfield, <laughs> familiar with his work. 
I'll be quite frank, until I looked at him, I didn't realize he had quite the career he did, which isn't saying much because I didn't think he had any career whatsoever. But 404 career hits, a career 711 OPS. And in 1996 with Toronto, he hit 12 homers, drove in 52 runs, and 12, stole 12 bases. That's not awful. So my dad gave me at one point for my birthday a bunch of uh, full sets of Cincinnati Reds teams where he'd like buy all the baseball cards, cards. for yep. the whole yep. team. And what and like 94 was in that group. So Jacob Brumfield was was part of that, I believe. There you go. That's, that's he, why I remember Jacob Brumfield so well. It's outstanding. Number nine comes Hippolito Pichardo, kind of a journeyman pitcher for 10 years with Kansas City, Boston, Houston, 50 and 44 career record, 444 ERA, had 20 saves and did pitch a shutout in his rookie season. So Hippolito Pichardo comes in at number nine. Number eight, Ron Kittle. The man you mentioned a moment ago, 1983 Rookie of the Year, also made the All-Star team that year when he hit 35 homers, drove in 100 runs, also hit 32 homers in 1984, finished with 176 career homers, but just a 239 career batting average. So Ron Kittle is number eight. Number seven is Farrell Edmonds, third-round pick of the Miami Dolphins, played with Miami from 88 to 94, played a couple years with Seattle, known mostly as a blocking tight end, but did make two Pro Bowls in 89 and 90. So... And did average 13 yards a catch for his career. So not a bad career for Farrell Edmonds. So he comes in at number seven. Number six is the actress you mentioned before, Mira Sarah. Um, who didn't have a crush on her and Ferris Bueller? Come on now. If you saw Ferris Bueller, hard not to like you some Mia Sarah back in the day. She ended up marrying Jim Henson of the Muppets fame, married his son. Um, had a kind of a long acting career, but pretty undistinguished other than Ferris Bueller. So she checks in at number six. Yeah, I'm looking number at five. her later on and I, I don't. I mean, not that anyone cares what I think, but I'm not a big fan of what she did with her hair later in life. She chop it down. Yeah, it's kind of like, almost like a, a mom mullet, I would say. It's kind of yeah, like short right. up front and then it's got like a weird uh, tail in the back thing going on. You it's, got you got to admit in Ferris Bueller, kind of sexy. Yeah, no, she was cute. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Mia Sarah overall from a teenage boy perspective. No question. Perfect. Perfectly done. Number five is Dickie Thon. Who is Dickie Thon? You ask Dickie Thon. That's a guy who took one, boy. Yes, it is. He got beaten by Mike Torres in 1984 and was never kind of the same player again, but had one of the great comebacks of all time. The year before he got beaned, Dickie Thon was the starting shortstop for the Houston Astros. That season, and this is when shortstops were not a big offensive position in 1983. He hit third in their lineup, Dickie Thon did. 28 doubles, 20 homers, 34 stolen bases, seventh in the MVP voting. But on April 8th of the next season, he got beamed in the head by Mike Torres, and it took him a long time to make it back to the big leagues. Finally kind of did so. He had three good years with the Phillies from 89 to 91, over 1,100 career hits, played in the playoffs with California in 79, Houston in 81 and 86. So Dickie Thon comes in at number five on the list. I will say, uh, as you read these, I Google them. And looking at his baseball card here, I would assume after his career ended in the early 90s, he became a porn star with that mustache. Oh yeah, that mustache is—he's got it going on. That was That's a clear, sick. that yeah. was a clear porn star mustache from back in the day. Number four, Vern Fleming, point guard for the Indiana Pacers from '85 to '95. Played one more year with the with the Brooklyn Nets. I did not realize. I always knew him as a point guard. He finished 98th. He actually didn't finish. He's 98th in NF, NBA history in assists in his career. That's a pretty nice company, right? Yeah, 98th top hundred. Also finished with over 10,000 career points. That's always a pretty good NBA milestone for 10,000 points. Yeah, Vern Fleming could get it done. 
Yes, he could. And his brother, Victor, played at Xavier, in case anybody is wondering. And for the Cincinnati Slammers. Number three, tennis player Chanda Rubin checks in. She was a top 10 player in her career. Got to the semis of the Australian Open once, the quarters of the French Open three times. Beat Serena Williams at one point in her career. Um, also won the, the doubles title in the 96 Australian Open. And for her career, won $4.5 million in prize money. So she's number three on the list. Where the hell did Mo pull Chandra Rubin's name from? I don't know, but he did. Yeah, he enough. did. And f- number two on the list, Juan Samuel. Most Reds fans will remember him for a cup of coffee here, but here's Juan Samuel, arguably one of the weirdest leadoff hitters in the history of baseball. He led the majors in strikeouts his first four or first five seasons, right? So keep that in mind. He, he led the majors in strikeouts the first five seasons as a leadoff hitter. And here was his average numbers as a leadoff hitter from 1984 to 1988, those five seasons. This is incredible to me. He averaged 32 doubles, 14 triples, 16 homers, 47 stolen bases, and 95 runs scored in that time frame. Wow. Yeah, wow is right. Wow. Go look up some Juan Samuel. Samuel. Finished with 1,500 career hits. He's 77th all-time in stolen bases. Was an all-star in 99. In fact, despite those years in Philly, he also was an all-star with LA in, in 91 and two times an all-star with Philly. So Juan Samuel comes in at number two on the list. And number one, are you kidding me? It's our guy, John Lomax. He's the GOAT, right? He, Come on. That was the easiest number one he Correct. given on all of these. Correct. Lists. John's your guy, too. I mean, you see, you see, when you worked in legend. There early mornings, you see John all the time. You love John. True legend. True legend. Exactly. That, that, that's the easy and, one. For and me. legitimately one of the greatest people you'll ever meet. I know people say that all the time flippantly about everyone, but like truly one of the greatest people you will ever meet. I will say when my daughter who works at Kroger now in human resources, she was a manager at Target when she was first out of college and she was um, uh, saw John at the end of the line one day and just walked up and says, hey, you might know my dad. And as soon as she said the name, she's like, he wouldn't stop talking about you, dad. I said, because he's a nice man. That's all. That's all there is to it. Just a very nice man. (laughs) So um, John Lomax, the goat goes in number one. So recapping top down, John Lomax, number one, Mo, Juan Samuel, two, Kendra Rubin, three. Vern Fleming, four. Dickie Thon, five. The actress Mia Sarah, six. Farrell Edmonds, seven. Ron Kittle, eight. Hippolito Pachardo, number nine. Jacob Brumfield, 10. Len Matuzak, 11. Winston Kreit in a changeup, 12. Marco Battaglia in a changeup, 13. Troy Sadowski fell to 14 after the initial rankings came out. And Glenn Sutko of the Reds checks in at number 15. Mo, How thank you as always. Glenn Sutko have to be to fall b- below Troy Sadowski after we looked at his stats. <laughs> One for 11 and struck out seven times in those 11 at-bats. Not ideal. (laughs) It's a way that you only get 11 at-bats in the big leagues, right? Yeah, I think so. All right, is that all we got for today? Yeah, I think that's it. Another great round of questions. uh, If we miss you, we'll get to you next week. Yep, we thank everybody for that. For Rick Boring, I'm Richard Skinner. Thanks for being with us. It's been the Skinny Podcast, the weekly Pope Edition.